This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older. Or that's what your doctor tells you. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. Midi specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective, and FDA-approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a Midi clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history, so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Talk Nerdy. Today is Monday, November 13th, and I'm your host, Cara Santa Maria. It's a really exciting episode that I've got for you guys today. I actually get to talk to the illustrator and animator behind a brand new series called The Secret World of Animal Sleep. It's on Smithsonian Earth, and I was lucky enough to do the narration for it, and Oralee Beatley made it beautiful. And so we're going to dive into all of that really soon. You can watch the first episode for free right now at smithsonianearthtv.com slash sleep. So I highly recommend you do that. Maybe you can even have it open while you're listening to the podcast. But before I dive in, guys, I want to thank those of you who have made Talk Nerdy possible this week. And that includes those of you who pledge your support at patreon.com slash talk nerdy. That's Phil T-Bear, Timothy Glover, Rob Shrek, Pedro M. Rosario Barbosa, Jeffrey Perez, Charles Payet, Jonathan Wright, Christian Jeffrey, Stuart Ogue, The Honorable Husband, Jafe, Gabriel Felipe Jaramillo Gonzalez, Brian Holden, and Jeffrey Sewell. And there are so many more of you who help support the show. I want to thank you from the absolute bottom of my heart. Okay, one more piece of business before we dive in. Guys, I am traveling to Australia and New Zealand. I'm actually recording this a couple days before I leave because it's going live on the day that I'm going to be visiting there. And after Australia and New Zealand, I get to go to Hong Kong and China. And I'm doing all of this with the skeptic societies in those um, different places. So the first place that I'm going to be um, visiting is Melbourne, Australia. And I'm going to be doing a talk called um, Beyond the Eye. Ooh. And I'll be speaking with Alan Duffy, who is an Australian physicist and science communicator. We're going to be at the Athenaeum Theater 
starting at 6 p.m. on Friday, November 17th. And then, of course, after that, I'll be traveling to Sydney for Skepticon, the Australian Skeptics 33rd National Convention. And I'll be giving a talk called Science Communication in Post-Truth America. So I highly recommend you check that out. After that, I'm traveling to Wellington, New Zealand, where I'll be speaking at the New Zealand Skeptics Conference. And um, that's going to be, I'm not exactly sure yet what my speaking slot is, but the conference itself is going to be held, let's see here, uh, from November 24th to November 26th at um, Sisters of Mercy in Wellington. So come meet me there with a lot of other super cool speakers. And then last but not least, guys, it's going to be a whirlwind trip. I'm going to be visiting the Hong Kong skeptics. And also, I want to make sure that I get this right. I'm not sure if I'm going to be pronouncing it right, but I want to make sure that I get it right. It's going to be a specific skeptic group, a Chinese skeptic group, and they're called the Dongguan China Skeptics. So Hong Kong Skeptics and Dongguan China Skeptics. You can find out about all the events that we're going to be doing here in just about three weeks um, by going to Meetup and checking out those different groups. So lots of skeptics in the pub things and things of that nature. So guys, I'm really looking forward to meeting all of you who I haven't gotten to meet yet because so many of my talks and visits are here in the United States. Um, if you're coming, hit me up on, on Twitter at Cara Santa Maria. Let me know about it. Okay, that's enough preamble. Let's get into the freaking show. I'm so excited about this one. As I mentioned, she is an illustrator and an animator. She has a lot of background in scientific illustration. She has a beautiful technique to her work. And her most recent project, which I was also involved with, is called The Secret World of Animal Sleep on Smithsonian Earth. Without any further ado, here she is, Orly Beatley. Well, Orly, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Kara. I'm really happy to be here. Yeah, this is going to be a lot of fun. So I think the last time I saw you was over a year ago. Would mm -hmm. that make sense? Yeah, I think yeah, so. Yeah, that. Um, because we worked together on this really wonderful new series for Smithsonian Earth called The Secret World of Animal Sleep. I did the easy part, which is lend my voice. You did the insanely hard and tireless part, which is animate the whole damn thing. I don't know how easy your part was, though, to be honest. Um, I was very kind of sweet. envious, envious <laughs> of like the, the science Disney princess experience because that was kind of cool to watch. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. I love how you put that. But yeah, it, I mean, this was a real labor of love, wasn't it? It's um, how many episodes did we end up doing? Was it five or six? So we did six episodes. We did six. We did six and um, it was a production that actually took about like almost two and a half years to make. Oh, wow. And when you look at it, I mean, you can see the work. It's absolutely stunning. So it's called The Secret World of Animal Sleep. It's these kind of short videos um, with a bunch of different sort of topics involving animal sleep. The very first one you can actually watch for free right now if you go to smithsonianearthtv.com slash sleep. And I'll lead you guys to that um, later in the episode too. But it's called Sleepless on the Savannah. And it's all about sort of the predator-prey relationship and the amount of sleep that different types of animals have based on, you know, whether they're super wary about getting eaten or 
or whether they can afford to sleep all day because they just go hunt, um, you know, for like a short period of time during the day. But what what I love so much about this series is that it's really stunning. It's like got this kind of dark, beautiful, sort of psychedelic vibe to it. And it's totally kid-friendly, but it definitely appeals to adults in a way that I think a lot of animated series don't do. Was that all intentional on your part? That was definitely intentional. So um, we had a a few meetings to start off before we even decided whether or not this was a feasible project for us to do. Um, And... uh, and uh, the consensus with the producers and what I what I wanted to do as well was that we, we wanted to make a series that was uh, that was beautiful, um, that appealed to every age group that you could watch with your kids, but that also had a lot of really hard science in it. Um, and we wanted to make it like aesthetically appealing to pretty much any age group. So we didn't mm-hmm. want to be too cartoony with it. And so that's that's the direction that we took it in. Yeah, it's really, really beautiful. And so it's a really interesting process. I was lucky enough when I flew out to the studios to do some of the um, in-studio recordings that I got to sit down with you and you kind of showed me your process in person. So I'm hoping that because this is a podcast format and you can't see it, well, I'm hoping that you've opened it up in the in another tab right now as you're listening to the podcast and you guys are looking at it as we speak. But um, Or at least the artwork from it, which I've shared like crazy on social media lately, but yeah, I would love to really talk about the process because it's it's not all done on the computer. Some of it is, but a lot of it you did by hand, right? Right. So that's, um, I mean, people get really impressed when you say, you know, I, this was done by hand, not on the computer. <laughs> both, both things are difficult. Um, and there are animators that are more comfortable working on the computer and animators that are more comfortable working with, with actual material. I'm one of these people who is trained classically, so I actually work faster when I'm drawing uh, than I do when I'm on the computer. So that was literally the decision behind that. It yeah. wasn't like, you know, oh, I'm going to show off with my light box. Um, I see. So it's basically like, do you want this in two and a half years or four years? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> you know, it was like, play to your strengths and uh, just go with that. Because like um, for, for a long time on the series, I was the only animator, um, I was the only artist. So in order to get it done in a timely fashion, but also in order to like, you know, just make it as good as it could be, um, I wanted to just work with my strengths, not try to be someone else. Absolutely. And so did you use mostly watercolor? I mean, it has a very watercolor look to it, but I wasn't sure if that was mixed media because I know nothing about visual art. <laughs> well, so yeah, so it's uh, it's mostly watercolors. Um, so all of the all of the artwork was done on paper with watercolors because I'm a watercolorist. Um, so like that was what I was most comfortable with. And uh, after that, what I would do is I would scan the images in and um, kind of like augment them in Photoshop. So um, some of the line work is done in Photoshop. But even then, I'm kind of like I'm cheating in Photoshop a little bit because I'm using a set of brushes that allows me to like mimic watercolors. But you never mimic completely via technology. So uh, in order to get that grain in there, because I wanted it to be like really pretty in 4K, that's actual paper. And that was like the only way for me to do it. I'm sure if I was like more technologically advanced, I would have found a way to do that digitally, but not there yet. So that's really cool, though, because it's a paper that has like a real texture to is that like watercolor paper? Is that what watercolor paper looks like? It's watercolor. It's cold press watercolor, in fact. Um, And uh, yeah, I mean, like it just has this awesome grain to it. It makes everything a little bit more like special. Very cool. Yeah. And so the really interesting part for me was that you did, you know, you did these beautiful backgrounds, right? Because the backgrounds are really rich and layered in the series, like, and a lot of it happens at night 
obviously, mm-hmm. because it's about <laughs> sleep. Um, it doesn't yeah. all happen at night, but a lot of it does. Um, depending on the animal. Exactly. But it has this, you know, beautiful kind of darkness to it. A lot of really rich, like I said before, sort of psychedelic colors. And so obviously the environments are quite rich, but then the actual animals themselves move. I mean, it is an animated series. And so you, okay, tell me if I'm wrong. You scanned your your kind of paintings of these animals into the computer and then you sort of puppeteered them, right? Yeah. So this is actually where it gets kind of sciencey. Um, in order, so the, you know, the background's fine. Like that, that's pretty easy. You just get down and like, I draw them. Some of them I did some research for, uh, like the, uh, the, the third episode that's set in Switzerland. Uh, there mm-hmm. are like recognizable pieces of Switzerland in there. Um, for the giraffe, it's just kind of a generic savanna. But um, when it came to the animals, I actually, in order for them to animate correctly, for people to be able to suspend disbelief and actually look at the animation, believe they were looking at a giraffe, um, they they had to move like a giraffe or move like a lion. And the only way to make that happen was to do quite a bit of research into like the way that the animals move in space and also the way that they're um, that they're designed via their skeleton. So what I would do is I would I would draw the giraffe. You on a piece of paper, scan it in, and then I would chop the giraffe up uh, according to pivot points uh, based on how the skeleton works. So, um, in order to do that, like you, basically, you have to like isolate, like you know, the the femur from the tibia, from the tarsus, from the claws or the hoofs or whatever. Um, and then, in order to rig it, um, I use a, a software that allows me to um, connect those pivot points to each other so that I can manipulate it from the tip of the limb as opposed to from the beginning. So I can move them around exactly like a paper puppet or, you know, exactly like a doll. And that that allows me to animate. So every time I move something, a limb, just a little bit, um, it drops a keyframe. And um, and that's, you know, one step. Oh, gosh, that's so much work. <laughs> it's so cool, though, because like like you mentioned, you know, the very first episode has giraffes and lions in it. Um, and giraffes mm-hmm. and lions are obviously very different, but they are still skeletal, you know, mammals like they have spinal cords and they, you know, have s- pivot points that are somewhat similar. But then like episode two is about dolphins, which are mammals, but they're like aquatic mammals. So they like undulate more. And then we get into like birds. There are a lot of birds throughout the series in there episode so a lot of birds. three in episode three and four. Yeah. And so um, and then in episode six, there are, you know, snakes, there are sharks, there are jellyfish. So there are all these different. And I think you, you added some jellyfish to the dolphin episode as well because mm-hmm. they're so pretty. Um, but <laughs> I mean, they all move so differently. So that must have been so much research just into the like um, musculature and the bone structure and, and just kind of the um, what do you call it? The ambulation of these different animals. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And so, I mean, obviously, like ungulates are different from, you know, digitigrades are different from plantigrades and uh, the way that you rig them is a little bit different. So luckily, um, the software that I use actually has um, different categories for different animals. Um, And obviously, if you're like inventing an animal, you can just sort of like combine these things together. But um, so it has like, you know, has a tab for ungulates, which is what I used for the giraffes, for example, Mm -hmm. um, in order to get their, you know, their legs to bend correctly. Um, It has um, a different tab for uh, for plantigrades. Um, I don't, actually don't know if I animated any plantigrades. I don't even oh, know what there, a plantigrade no. is, so I'm looking it up right um, now. Plantigrades are us. Mammal actually. working on soles of the feet, like a human or a bear. Yeah, yeah. I don't think there are any like bipedal yeah animals in the series are there well you know what actually i think i did for the um for the squirrels 
Oh, you may have put, um, okay, cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. There so, are some squirrels, so yeah, but there are I mean, also foxes, but you would have animated the foxes differently than the squirrels, huh? Right. So the foxes are, um, <laughs> we, I'm calling them digitigrades. I, I don't know whether or not that's the actual scientific term. Uh, I think it is. Uh, but anyway, so like, it's really just about like the length of these, like of these various component parts. So like, you know, the tarsus looks different on a giraffe than it does on a fox, even though they sort of like, you know, mm-hmm. the legs kind of bend the same way, but they, they don't distribute weight exactly the same way. I see. Um, so a digitigrade, so I, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm like Wikipediaing yeah. all of these things as we speak of a normal. <laughs> Walking on its toes and not touching the ground with its heels as a dog, a cat, or a rodent. Yeah, it's exactly. true. Their fourth, that uh, the pad, and then also their their claw, mm-hmm. the dew claw, like hangs up in the air. It doesn't actually touch the ground. Gosh, right. I never thought about it. Okay, so plantigrades, <laughs> digitigrades, and ungulagrades. I'm so excited because on my other podcast, The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, I do uh-huh. this wonderful segment called What's the Word? And I'm always looking for new science words that I didn't already know. And oh my gosh, you just gave me three. And I'm going to use them and people Fantastic. won't have heard because this episode yeah. will air after that. Yay. You just Go made my day. trivia forever. Um, oh my yeah. gosh. I'm so excited. <laughs> this is so funny because I know that these are actual like scientific terms, but it mm-hmm. seems like they really apply. I'm so sorry. I'm taking you off on a tangent. They no, really apply to scientific um, illustration, don't they? Yeah, they do. Um, <laughs> and I have, I have a pretty good background in scientific illustration, which, which helped with the series quite a bit. Oh, that's so cool. So back to the uh, digitigrades, the foxes and the and the um, squirrels. What were we saying about them? So, um, <laughs> so depending depending on exactly how they walk on their feet, you know, um, and uh, and how they balance on these like you know various elements that I have mm-hmm. to cut up and rig. So you know the 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 movement and like you know the the way that like they distribute uh, weight is a little mm-hmm. bit different, and that has to be fairly correct or at least like look fairly naturalistic in order for people to really believe that they're looking at them. Absolutely. A problem with a lot of like you know kind of throwaway animations, people don't pay attention to that stuff when they're making shorts, and so like everything kind of moves the same way and people just kind of get disconnected from it, I think. So like we, we wanted to be like fairly accurate with that, especially since we had like, you know, crazy jellyfish, uh, and like, you know, a day to night transition that took like 2.5 seconds. (laughs) (laughs) Other stuff had to look real. (laughs) (laughs) But you know, there's, I think that there are these great, um, tricks to production and to filmmaking that, um, you know, have really been researched from a scientific perspective over so many decades, you know, like eye blink edits and cuts Mm -hmm, and things mm -hmm. like that, that really actually speak to how we perceive the world. So you can do a day to night transition in 2.5 minutes, so long or 2.5 seconds, so long as the moon kind of comes from the right direction and the sun sort of sets the, the appropriate way and then it doesn't feel off. It's really cool. Exactly. I mean, just like with theater, really, with animation, you're asking your audience to suspend disbelief. Like, clearly, mm-hmm. it's a made-up world, um, but you want them to be able to interact with it in a way that mimics the real world for them to be able to get the information that you want you know, them to get. Um, and so, like, animation is actually all tricks. You know, it's, uh, it's kind of interesting when you, when you put it... Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. 
MIDI clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older. Or that's what your doctor tells you. But MIDI Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. MIDI specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective, and FDA-approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a MIDI clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Side by side with, with film, animation is all about using science uh, in order to trick people into believing that what they're looking at is real. So the way that we manipulate volumes, for example, like people don't really stretch and squash in real life when they're walking. But in yeah. order to make them look like they're actually traveling through space when you're drawing them, you have to do that. And the way that we do it is, you know, we use our understanding of the physical world of science uh, in order to like manipulate the laws of physics in order to, you know, confuse people into thinking they're actually seeing them, which is cool. Oh, it's so cool. Yeah. And it really does have this like dual side of the science, right? It has mm-hmm. all the scientific information you have to use to put into producing a world that's believable, but then all of the kind of neuro and psychological stuff that we, I think some of that really is um, less overt, you know, it's almost like instinctual, but all mm-hmm. of the things that are required for us to be able to receive it in a reasonable way. Cause you said you, you we do suspend disbelief, like obviously, Obviously, this is an animated world, but it feels so real. And if something's too outside of the norm, we're not going to be able to. It's going to be jarring to us as an audience. Yeah, it jolts you out. Um, yeah. it's, it's it's the penny in your pocket. But um, the the thing that's uh, yeah, the thing that's cool about new media, things like animation, is that it's really where like art and science dovetail. Um, mm-hmm. It's you know a lot of these like art movements that happen in, like you know the the early twentieth century through to now. What you're seeing is like we have this this much better understanding of the world we live in, of how people think, of how they look at things, and we're using that in order to create artistic experiences. Um, and that's you know that's film that's animation in a nutshell. So it was kind of a perfect medium in order to explore this topic. Oh, so much fun. And one thing that I have to say that I absolutely loved about doing this series is that, so I went in and did one round of um, voiceover work for it when everything, I think one of the episodes or a couple of the episodes might have been almost complete, but for the most part, they were kind of in various stages of completion. And so we did one round of voiceover based on some of the storyboards and things. And then I came back later, partially because the animation was closer being done, but also partially because new science had come about and we actually needed to change some of the voiceover to reflect this new science. Um, And it had to do with how birds sleep when they're in flight because there was some sort of assumption um, historically about these micro naps that birds take when they're flying, but then there was some new hard evidence that was published. And so we wanted to reflect that in the script. How freaking cool is that? 
That is super cool. Yeah, because like when we were uh, writing it, we were like, oh, yeah, you know, be careful. Maybe don't use like a unihemispheric slow wave sleep. Like we might not be super sure that they're actually like taking micro naps while they're flying. And then um, as we came closer to, the com to, to completion, one of the scientists that Anissa, one of the producers was working with, published a paper um, that outlined all of the stuff and uh, it became actual hard science. Like for real, we know. Mm -hmm. um, so we changed the voiceover and you were kind enough to accommodate us with that um luckily it did not change the animation <laughs> yeah i didn't have to do any extra work <laughs> on that good. and i was a little worried about that <laughs> um but yeah no so i mean like the science literally like you know concretized uh as we were as we were making it which is uh which is amazing like that doesn't happen very often yeah 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 no it was it was really really cool and yes you're right it's so good that you didn't have <laughs> like they look the same when they're flying. I was like, oh man, am I going to have to make him land? Like, <laughs> let's not do that. <laughs> well, and one thing that I thought was so interesting about this series is that, and I'm pulling up because I have some great like notes um, from each episode. I, I wrote mm -hmm. down sort of what we covered in every single episode. But one thing that I thought was so incredibly interesting was not just the sort of biological and I guess, neurological background of sleep. Like, I think a lot of times when we think about sleep, we think about what is sleep for? How do animals look while they're sleeping? How many mm -hmm. hours a day are they sleeping? And maybe, you know, we got into hibernation a bit in episode mm -hmm. um, five, the mysteries of hibernation. But also there was this really cool, like, physiological component to the sleep, like this mechanistic component, like how, you know, horses that sleep standing up and birds that sleep on tree branches, how do they not fall down? And so th it's this cool overlay of like the animal sleeping and then this like pulley system in their tendons that you got to animate, which was so neat. Right. Um, so that's one of the cool things about doing animation for this. So uh, at first, I think that this was conceptualized as a live action series because that's what we we mostly do mm -hmm. over at Smithsonian. And then we kind of, you know, as we got into the weeds of it, um, the executive producer was saying, you yeah, know, maybe we could do animation because that opens up like entire worlds. We can we can show, you know, I mean, obviously we don't know what it looks like when a bird goes into REM. Like I, I don't I don't know whether or not they have like you know psychedelic flashbacks, which is what yeah. we did. <laughs> yeah. um, but like you know, artistically, we can sort of convey more information that way. So we can put like pulley systems on the legs of you know the uh, the, the horse in order to make that more obvious. Um, we can animate like you know half of a dolphin's brain lighting up in order to show how like you know that that mechanism works and then you know most famously with the birds we can have them have a little like psychedelic interlude um mm -hmm. in order to show REM sleep so it just sort of like it gave us more flexibility with the visual communication that we were going to engage in, in order to get these you know these difficult concepts across uh, it's so neat. That's true. You can do a lot more because when something's animated, obviously you're taking us into this like fantasy world. And this I think was really lovely because it really is this hybridization of like fantasy being able to see something and not in like a cheesy way. Like sometimes you see with science programming where it's like an overlay of real life and then like, mm -hmm. you know, some sort of textbook graphic. Um, but this really beautiful way to sort of peer beyond the skin and the flesh that is skin <laughs> to peer beyond the fur and the flesh and see what's sort of uh -huh. happening on the inside of the of the creatures and same thing with um the episode about hibernation because we could kind of go down into these little holes where the ground squirrels were hibernating and see mm -hmm. what's happening underneath the ground yeah exactly i mean i you know 
when we were coming up with the concept for this, um, I think that part of what was important for us was that along with the science, it also had to be entertaining. Um, so we, we wanted to just make it a whole package. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, I mean, like, you know, we wanted to gear this to as many people as possible. Um, but we figured that like a good way to do that would be to sort of, you know, appeal to a sense of nostalgia. Maybe make this like a, a picture book, you know, with yeah. hard science in it. Because I think all of us grew up with like, you know, these, these beautiful books or, you know, these beautiful series um, where like, there was one when I was growing up about like the inside of the human body and like, you know, the red blood cells were like knights and stuff. And mm-hmm. it was it was really cool. Oh, I love um, that. So we just kind of wanted to, you know, go back to that form of communication and like, you know, create something that dovetailed off of that. Well, I love it because then it actually taps into kind of this dual way that we process scientific information. And we talk about this a lot on my show because, you know, I work as a full-time freelance science communicator. And so right. part of what I do is I get hired to go on TV or to podcast and and I, you know, talk about science or I, you know, try and illustrate science in different ways. But the other part of that is actually trying to improve my craft. So I'm always, you know, working with other science communicators and and reading about science communication and learning about the most effective ways to do science communication, kind of the science of science communication, which is quite um, Mm -hmm. meta. And of course, you know, we've learned over the years that taking an approach that's just like the knowledge deficit approach, just like here's information. Why why can't you just gather this information (laughs) and apply it? it? It doesn't work because people respond best to things that appeal to them emotionally. And I think that part of what I love about this series is that it has this like depth and this beauty and this really, it like hits you in a place that like a nature documentary might not hit you unless it has something sort of emotional and compelling about it, you know, a beautiful score or like drama in, in the animals. Mm-hmm. But because it's animated and because it's like really, really beautiful and taps on these super fascinating concepts, you get this dual experience that's like intellectual and emotional at the same time. Right. So, I mean, that's definitely something that, you know, you and your podcast do an amazing job with. It's, uh, it's, it's packaging information that can be quite complex um, in ways that people can interact with and, uh, and understand. Um, because, you yeah, know, that, that's where science is most useful. Um, that's very nice of you to say. Thank you. <laughs> it's true. I mean, Aww. like, I'm very excited to be talking to you for just that reason. Um, but, yeah, I mean, if you look at, like, you know, very successful science communicators, people like, you know, Carl Sagan, for example, Mm-hmm. or Bill Nye the science guy there's something about the way that they communicate this information Carl Sagan in particular with the beautiful scores and like the, the quasi spoken word, word poetry that would show yeah. up every once in a while um, that that calls upon our emotion and like allows us to understand difficult concepts because we're 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 engaging with a person as well um, so that that's something that's very cool in this case yeah I just kind of wanted to like bring you back to childhood and then hit you with all of this really like high level science yeah. <laughs> Um, and that way we're kind of like getting you with the stealth approach. <laughs> well, and, and it's really smart too the way that it's written, which I can't take any credit for. I did not write any of this. I just <laughs> read it. But um, a lot of it sort of takes an animal, let's say episode one, where we're talking about um, uh, lions and giraffes or episode two, where we're talking about dolphins. And these are mm-hmm. their um, sleep, the uniqueness of their sleep. It's very different from human sleep. And, but we also, and, and you guys who worked so hard on the, on the actual script of this understand that when 
people are receiving really cool science, they often are applying it to themselves. So a lot of the dialogue in this is like, whereas we will blah, 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 this animal will blah, blah, blah. Or like, just like when we are babies, we have to. And I think that's so helpful. It sort of relates it back to us. So it doesn't really feel esoteric when mm-hmm. we're when we're watching because some of these animals sleep is like wildly different from ours. Like there are times when giraffes only sleep like five minutes a day. Like that's yeah, which crazy. Seems insane. That <laughs> I seems know. insane. And like, how do we even comprehend? <laughs> exactly. Like, how do we comprehend that? But it's so great mm-hmm. to keep relating it back to us. And the reason, of course, that a giraffe might only spend usually they sleep about two hours, but might only sleep five minutes, is because if they're asleep, they're like a sitting duck. They could get eaten at any time. Whereas a lion might sleep twenty three hours a day because they only need an hour to like hunt and eat. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's yeah, it's also about energy expenditure with them mm-hmm. too. Like you know, giraffes are a little bit like cows. Like they spend most of their time grazing, and they don't you know they don't do a huge amount um, unless they get attacked. And what they do eat is like not as nutritive. You know what I mean? They're just mm-hmm. eating leaves all day, which you have to eat so many to get the the right amount of calories. Whereas a lion is eating like pure carnivorous prey. It's really caloric. And so they're able to, um, to just to, cruise on that. Exactly. Exactly. And they don't have to eat as often, you know, which is great. It's like sharks, same thing or, or mm-hmm. snakes, you know, they don't, they don't eat that often because when they eat, they're eating live prey. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, and, you know, it's, it's like, it's based on these like brief, intense bursts of energy that they have to expend mm-hmm. in order to be able to get prey. But yeah, I mean, we, we didn't want to just like lob knowledge at you. Um, because as you said, that's not necessarily all that effective. Yeah. Uh, we wanted, we wanted people to like experience it through the artwork, but also think about it, um, and think about it after the episode was finished. Um, think about how crazy it is for a giraffe to spend five to 10 minutes sleeping when, you know, we would die. Oh my gosh. Um, I know. It was <laughs> Have you seen these studies where they like, um, I mean, they're really, really sad, but these studies where they did the yolk control with the mice uh-huh. in order to see what happens if you just don't sleep? Yeah, no, it's, it's so crazy. messed up. So basically, it's guys, really crazy. yeah, what they do to make sure that like a mouse would sleep. Okay, I, this is always so hard to explain, but they'll have a mouse and then they'll have uh, another mouse like tied to it on this little thing where it's like walking around in circles so that if the mouse, you know, lays down and tries to fall asleep, the other one will always keep it awake. So it's a way to make sure that even if the um, researchers can't be there to like prod them all the time, that they're constantly awake. And they found that I want to say it takes like a month for them to die, which is really sad. Like that's a long time of like pure insomnia, but they die of massive organ failure. And they have Mm -hmm. these like wounds all over their body that you know just kind of developed like they didn't they weren't injured but because of the lack of sleep um you know i guess their like natural healing processes aren't able to take place and so they just have these like almost like bed sores all over their body and on their paws especially um and it's it's super super sad and that i mean it's likely that that would happen to people but ethically we've never been able to actually study we've done some sleep deprivation studies in people Mm -hmm. who like 
you know, naturally can't sleep, but it's super unethical to like force people to stay away. Exactly. Because yeah, well, it can yeah, kill you. <laughs> Honestly, you know, the the, uh, the ethical considerations were something that showed up in this series as Ooh. well. Um, so <laughs> interesting. In, uh, yeah. Let me tell you a little bit about okay, that. Yeah, so for sure. um, obviously nothing that like we were we were actually engaging in, but it, it did change some of the uh, some of the language that we uh, that we use. So mm-hmm. the scripts that we use for all of these episodes were developed over, you know, like many, many, many meetings and yeah. many, many, many drafts. And so the end result doesn't sound anything like the beginning. And uh, and what we were trying to do, and I think like, this came through in the actual series, is we were trying to be as conversational as possible, you know, maybe maybe a little funny in places. Yeah, there are definitely um, some kind of funny, like th- there's a joke about like, you know, dreaming that you're naked at work or something. <laughs> Just yeah, great. and yeah. I mean, like, you know, your your voice lent like so much depth to that. It was really great. <laughs> but, but so um, while we were writing um, episode five, The Mysteries of Hibernation, Mm-hmm. Um, we were focusing on Arctic ground squirrels and Arctic ground squirrels are really kind of interesting because when they hibernate, they're basically dead. Like their <laughs> brains go, <laughs> Oh, it's amazing. Like their brains go black. Like it's, it's very, very, very much not sleep. And they're, they're basically dead. Yeah. They well, their body temperature is 27 degrees Fahrenheit below freezing. Like your brain can't function right. at that level. Nothing can function. It's insane. Like their yeah. their brain literally goes dark. Um, and so there were like there have been a couple of experiments where scientists have you know been observing Arctic ground squirrels and like juggling them while they're yeah. they're hibernating, <laughs> which you know like it's funny, but at the same time like it raised some ethical questions. Uh, yeah. And so while we were while we were writing about it, you know like we we immediately kind of like zoomed in on like that fact because you know <laughs> it was it was funny. And then we went through like several revisions. We we're like you know maybe maybe we shouldn't. You you know, maybe we should mention that. Because, yeah. like, it seems like that might be animal abuse. I mean, it doesn't hurt the squirrels. They're fine. Um, no squirrels have ever been injured in like, you know, these uh, in the these uh, uh, experiments that they were doing. But like, yeah, so ethical considerations did kind of come into it when we were thinking about how to convey this information, because like studying animals sometimes gets a little bit like dark. <laughs> yeah. And it can really like, um, you know, no pun intended, ruffle people's feathers and you don't uh, want to exactly. offend anybody who's like, you know, um, a little bit wary of animal research as it is. Like I've done a lot of animal research. And so I'm very like, I promote animal research a lot. And I try mm-hmm. to talk about those ethical considerations and where, where are your lines? And I brought that up quite a bit on the show. But there are people out there who are like blanket against animal research. And of course, mm-hmm, you don't mm-hmm. want to offend them so much that they're not interested in learning about animals because of it. So I think that this series does a really good job of having a more naturalistic, voyeuristic vibe to it. Like we're always Mm -hmm. looking at these animals in their habitats, in the wild and seeing what they do on their own. And we're just kind of peering in on them while they're sleeping, which is super cool. Right. So, I mean, something that was cool about like making this an animation as well is that when we chose, we could completely take out the human elements. Um, mm-hmm. There was there was no man with no camera nowhere. Yeah. You know? yeah. So um, and that's something that, you know, it's it's not possible when you're doing a nature documentary, even if you're not showing a human um, in the frame. There was a human there. Yeah. And that sort of that that alters the way that you're interacting with the animal or with the information. Um, in this case, since you know, there's no man, there's also no animal because <laughs> yeah. animals were invented. But um, but it's sort of like, you know, it's it's a pure experience almost where you're you're in uh, an environment where you know that there's there's absolutely no human contamination or if you want to look at it really meta there's only human contamination I guess I, I made it up <laughs> that's awesome but um, yeah I know so it's it's a bit of a different experience it's a bit of a different way of interacting with the information it's true that some things change as we get older 
But if you're a woman over 40 and you're dealing with insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, and weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. And with MIDI Health, you can get help and stop pushing through it alone. The experts at MIDI understand that all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes that happen around menopause. And MIDI can help you feel more like yourself again. Many healthcare providers aren't trained to treat or even recognize menopause symptoms. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts. They're dedicated to providing safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions for dozens of hormonal symptoms, not just hot flashes. Most importantly, they're covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. You deserve to feel great. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. So I have to say that, like, I think the most common, um, sorry, I just turned away from the mic when I said that those weird killer got my attention. <laughs> he's sleeping on my lap and he's so cute. I couldn't have, <laughs> it's like, that's well, also you very know, meta. You have your own sleeping oh, no. animal. That's great. It's amazing. Um, good killer. A good killer. Yeah. But so, um, I think the thing that always sort of piques people's interest when we talk about sleeping animal, I mean, all of this stuff is really interesting. Absolutely. That's what, part of why I was so attracted to working on this series. But one thing that I think people all always say like, God, I wish I had that. Like, how come we, human beings don't have that? Is, you mentioned it before, unihemispheric slow wave sleep. Like, it's a right. fascinating concept that um, sort of, unless you've already learned about it, it usually blows people's minds when they first find out that some animals have this ability, dolphins and birds among them. And so I'd love to chat with you about that a little bit, because I'm sure you had to do quite a bit of research to figure out, you know, how do I best represent this, first of all? And how do I show like does a dolphin look different while it's in unihemispheric sleep than while it's like wide awake you know how do you animate something like that well actually yeah so uh, that's a great question because uh, the thing is like you know the dolphins really don't look all that different yeah. we still had to communicate it and there was the issue that like one of the things that they do do is uh, when dolphins undergo unihemispheric slow wave sleep they close one eye and leave the other one open now, oh, that's if you guys, so creepy and weird. <laughs> I know. It, and they switch it over afterwards. So, like, you know, they, they alternate between sides of the brain. And so they'll close one eye and then they'll open it again and they'll close the other one. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So maybe we should explain before like what this is. Right. So it's the idea that because a dolphin, for example, which is a mammal and has to breathe underwater, it has to like go up to the surface to get oxygen. And because birds, um, certain types of birds, when they especially um, migratory birds, they'll fly these really long distances and they can't stop and land to sleep. They will basically sleep while they're still active. Um, and they've got to have some amount of vigilance to be able to not die. 
And so what they'll do is half of their brain, because you know you have this big sulcus in the middle of your brain uh, and you've got two different hemispheres, one half of the brain will go to sleep while the other is still awake and somewhat alert. And so, and anybody who knows like the brain, motor control of the brain, not all control of the brain, but definitely motor and sensory control of the brain is, um, uh, there's a word for this that I'm blanking on, but it's um, <laughs> it's uh, like cross-lateral. There's a way better word mm-hmm. for that. Meaning that like your the right hemisphere controls the muscles on the left side of the body and vice versa. So like it would make sense, right? If if the right hemisphere of the dolphin is asleep, that the left eye would be closed. Um, but the right, if the left hemisphere is wide awake or not wide awake, but awake, then the right eye would be like open and looking around like a freaking pirate. Right. It's like exactly. amazing. Exactly. No, which is really cool. Well, it's actually, you know, the thing is um, the human, the unihemispheric slow wave sleep isn't what blew my mind because like whatever sign. I'll take whatever you throw at me. <laughs> the thing that really got me about that is that like dolphins don't breathe involuntarily the way that we do, which is why oh, that yeah, has to that's happen. super weird. They have which to decide crazy. to breathe every time. I know. Can I know. you and, imagine? And oh. Just to get super dark, there have been cases in which uh, dolphins and aquariums have decided not to breathe anymore. Oh, so yeah. That, that brings up depressed. other ethical, <laughs> right? That, is, that brings up like other ethical considerations. Oh my gosh, but, that's fascinating because okay I've always I've always thought about this like this function of sort of because we can do um uh, like conscious breathing right like obviously we have unconscious breathing that's how we stay awake and like it's a deep deep brain um control it's actually a um uh, brainstem area that controls that, but we can consciously breathe when we think about it. I'm doing it right now. I'm breathing, you know, and I do it in yoga class like every day. But I've always been frustrated when I go to the doctor and like, you know, they listen to your, they'll put the stethoscope on your chest. They'll say, okay, breathe really deeply. And then, okay. And then they're like, now breathe normally. And you're like, I don't know how. I've completely <laughs> lost the ability. Yeah. <laughs> it's like because you actually have to not be thinking about it to do it. But dolphins uh-huh. have to constantly think about it, which is like that's like just bananas yeah that's it's bananas. absolutely nuts i mean the you know i guess that that's like part and parcel of what comes with like you know living in two states at once and mm-hmm. they can you know they can they can surface for air um but then they also spend most of their time underwater so but uh yeah no so i mean like that really blew my mind when i found out about it um but that's really so, neat that's really yeah, neat. no. So the the unihemispheric slow wave sleep is definitely very cool, and it's definitely the fr- as you mentioned uh, when I was telling my grandma mm-hmm. <laughs> the series that I was doing, um, that was the bit that was like, whoa, you can shut down half your brain. You know, I kind of yeah. feel like some people might just operate that way uh, <laughs> on a regular basis, like in the human world as well, but they just don't turn the other one on. So, but to answer <laughs> to answer your question um, about the the animation part of it, yeah. um, what was difficult about that was actually that like if you if you looked at the animation my puppets are sideways um they live in this sideways world where they don't really turn around and the reason for that is that they're they're rigged like puppets uh, mm-hmm. so they're not volumetric oh because they're flat yeah they're two-dimensional yeah, they're, flat. <laughs> they're flat how do you show that you know the dolphin's other eye is like open when you you don't you know so basically for the dolphins episode i had to like break from the puppets when we were explaining that concept mm-hmm. and actually animate frame by frame i think it took like you know 120 frames oh or something my gosh. Um, of the dolphin spinning around so that i could show the other side and his eye opening on that side oh, um, so, so that's, crazy that was something that was part of the consideration when animating is to have to show the science but like I only had like half a dolphin so. yeah yeah and that's also yeah, probably yeah. why you made the decision 
to, even though you're looking at the dolphin from, you know, what's called like a sagittal view, like a side plane, mm-hmm. like he's, you know, it's like, let's say you're looking at his right side only, his nose is to the, to the right and his tail is to the left. Mm-hmm. You actually animated the brain at certain parts from, um, from a forward viewpoint. So you could see both hemispheres in the brain. So it was kind of twisted in its head so that you could see what's going on. Right, exactly. It was so twisted, in fact, yeah. that like we had a head-on view of the brain, and also we were looking at it from above, uh, mm-hmm. which you know, wasn't the case with the dolphin at all. But uh, but that's something you can do in animation. Um, exactly. I think it would have looked real weird if we were doing it live action, but there, I, you know, I, I honestly don't think that anyone picks up on it. Yeah. I, now all of your viewers, <laughs> are, all of your listeners are going to pick up on it. I feel like it. if anybody <laughs> were to pick on, up on it, it would be my listeners, and now they know uh, why. Yeah. It's yes. so that you could really yeah. see more. <laughs> and by the way, I just remembered the word. It's contralateral. <laughs> contralateral. Good one. Absolutely. Now I'm going to go win a trivia. <laughs> I know, right? That would be another good one for SG. I'm going to bring that up. Yeah. So, so yeah, obviously, if one side of the brain is asleep, the contralateral eye is um, is also closed, which is freaking weird. I still can't get over that. That's so freaking weird. I know. I know. <laughs> you know what else is weird is the what I learned. I actually learned this from doing this series that uh, specifically owls and foxes, like I have no idea why it's just those specific animals, but that their brains are really underdeveloped when they're born as opposed to a lot of other mammals. And so they need more REM like when they're like within that first month, like within the first few weeks that they're born, they get like two or three times as much REM as in the rest of their entire adult lives. That's the weirdest thing I've ever heard. It is weird. It is something that like, actually, um, it shouldn't be too weird because that's kind of the way we function too. Um, we do sleep babies, a lot when we're babies, but not that, and, sl- but are we not in that, REM much. that much? I don't know if we are, you know, we, we did look at humans, yeah. but I don't think, I don't think so. Um, the other thing too, is that obviously like animals have like, uh, they, they have quicker lifespans. So, yeah, that's um, true. you know, mm-hmm. they, they kind of have less time to get that under control, but, uh, yeah. So, um, owls and foxes are, you know, I mean like, uh, like a lot of mammals, mm-hmm. um, are owls mammals mammals? No, nope, yeah. they're birds. Owls are ma- no, yeah. they're not. They're yeah, birds. Okay, they're never birds. mind. Yeah, so it's um, really just. I feel like kinship to owls. So I know. I'm just always confused about Isn't it them, funny? But... And they're like they're like fat and fuzzy in a way mm-hmm. that like mm-hmm. other birds don't feel that way. Owls do feel. Yeah. It's one of those things I remember talking about early on in my psychology studies about like heuristics and ways that we, mm-hmm. like schemas, like ways that we develop shortcuts in our minds so that we don't always have to make a decision about everything we see. Like like. Like balls and sports, right? They're all the same size and shape. And if you see a ball, then you say, okay, that's probably used to play sports. And you don't have to have seen a new ball before you can make that kind of decision. And right. we do the same thing with um, with the way that we categorize animals. And of course, that's always under, not under fire, but it's always under review because historically animals like taxonomically were categorized based on the shape of their hips or, you know, their mm-hmm. beak or, you know, whatever these skeletal things. But then we started to do real genetic testing and we fe- found out we were kind of wrong sometimes and right other times. And I think owls and um, specifically owls and um, maybe like ostrich, less so ostrich, Mm -hmm. but sort of ostrich and emus. And then also penguins are these kinds of birds that break the schema where you see a bird and a bird is a bird and they're all kind of different, but they're all very bird-like. But then those three, Mm -hmm. when you see them, you're always like have to be, oh yeah, that's a bird. It's just really freaking different than most birds. Like they break your schema. 
Yeah, 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 exactly. I mean, yeah. So, I mean, they, and they all do something a little bit weird when it comes to birds, like, you know, the penguins yeah. walking upright. But yeah, exactly. The, the, the owls, it's the eyes, you know? I mean, like, I look at this owl and I'm like, oh, person owl, like, I understand you. I know, you, I, I know. They're easier to anthropomorphize, you know, than other birds Absol- are because other birds can be, like, totally terrifying. I, absolutely. Other birds are basically dinosaurs. Owls yeah. are, like, <laughs> wise and there are cartoon versions of them all the time. And I have to tell you a quick, uh-huh. quick story that I'm telling everybody right now a quick story and my boyfriend (laughs) would kill me if he knew I was saying this but I don't think he listens to the show so um here we go we're in I know we're in the Galapka oh that would be a lot of hours of his life you'd have to commit so I thank all of you for doing that on a regular basis um we're in the Galapagos a couple of years ago we spend Christmas there and it's um we did would not like we Christmas in the Galapagos every you know it's one really big vacation we're super excited about and we get to um and and mind you I should say my boyfriend works at Disney so I think he's a little bit primed in this way but we get to the Galapagos and we check into our room and then we go to um, eat some food in the main like dining area and there's all these like glass doors that after we eat lead out and we're walking the grounds of, of where our hotel is and there's an owl like right there just like sitting on like a park bench, basically just looking at us and it's three feet away. And granted, we live in Los Angeles and there's a lot of urban wildlife, but I just don't think that my boyfriend had come in contact with an owl like that before. And he, he literally said these words. They were the first things he thought. That's so weird that they would have an animatronic owl. Just like, and I was oh, like, no. I was like, honey, no, that's a real owl. Like, we're in the Galapagos. We're not at Disney World. And it took him a moment because there is also something very weird about owls, like the way that they turn their heads and they're sort of stiff and they have these really mechanical mm-hmm. movements and then they go, <laughs> and he legit yeah. thought that it was like placed there for our amusement, which was hilarious. That's really <laughs> well. Actually, you know that that's kind of something that I thought about while I was making this. So, um, <laughs> I I, love that. my. my- my my grandparents live out like in the middle of nowhere in France and so when I was little I was very used to being around a lot of animals just on a regular basis Um, I became aware later on that that wasn't necessarily normal I mean people interact with animals in contained spaces in Mm -hmm. most cities you know so you can go to the zoo where you see a squirrel and that's pretty much how it is people don't usually like walk across the road and like oh hey there are like nine cows looking at you (laughs) cows are big too so um, I mean it was kind of interesting making this because like I you know yeah we're, we're just I think we're really used to like interacting with animals in ways that are kind of like removed from us yeah they're um, super contrived but, right but this kind of brings it yeah you know I mean like here we are just watching them sleep which is kind of vulnerable um of course mine are fake uh unlike the owl <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. no I think that that's an amazing story actually um I don't, yeah, man, I don't know <laughs> if I would, it's, it's possible that I would have had like a similar reaction. I'm thinking like, but did he think that the Komodo dragon, did you see any Komodo dragons? No, we see, um, no, there they have these, um, they're, they're iguanas, these massive, oh, okay. um, they have both land and sea iguanas and yes, uh-huh. they're everywhere, but they, you know, you, they're more organic. They like walk and but they do the wiggle walk them. and he was expecting them and they have like this breathing, <laughs> you know, that you can see their ribs going in it, even though lots of times they're a little bit just just kind of warming in the sun so they don't move much they they uh-huh. you know they have this like breathing way but just i don't know what it was about this 
No, that's, that's really fantastic. Yeah, no, but it's, I think, you know, we, we take animals and the way we interact with them totally for granted. Absolutely. Um, so like, you know, the, the series is kind of cool because you, you know, it's, they're so weird. You can't really take them for granted. <laughs> it's, and it's true. I feel like in each and every episode, so there's six episodes and actually we've been talking about them kind of sporadically, but let's just go through really a quick list. Episode one mm-hmm. is called Sleepless on the Savannah. And again, you can watch it for free if you go to smithsonianearth.com right now. Um, and then after that, if you want to subscribe, which you absolutely should, and there's a lot of different ways um, to be able to subscribe. Like, let me look, I have the whole list here, which I was, I actually didn't realize. And I was really excited to see Smithsonian Earth is available um, as a streaming service. Like, first of all, it's 4k, it's ultra HD, it's beautiful. And there is a lot of like stunning live action, uh, nature programming, but it's available through Apple, through Roku, through Amazon, through Android, and at SmithsonianEarthTV.com. So you can watch it really in any of these places. But if you if you go to SmithsonianEarthTV.com slash sleep, you can watch Sleepless on the Savannah for free right now. And then um, episode two is about dolphins and all that cool stuff with unihemispheric sleep. Episode three is Sleep on the Wing. It's all about really cool things that birds do. And it's more than just unihemispheric sleep. It's got like some really cool stuff about their passive stay apparatus and things like that. Episode four is about babies. It's a lot about REM. It's a lot about how babies sleep differently than adults. Episode five is all about hibernation. And we dive deep into the um, the Arctic ground squirrels that are basically dead, as you mentioned, but we don't use that <laughs> word. Um, and sleeping foxes, which are really beautiful and fun. And then episode six is a cool grab bag of just like weird things that animals do when they're asleep. So it, it goes into how horses don't fall down. You know, they sleep standing up, which is weird. So the, all this stuff has to happen in their physiology. Snakes, you know, they can't close their eyes because they don't have eyelids. So that's fun. Spiny dogfish, which is a type of shark. They have to keep moving in order to not die because, of course, the way that, you know, um, fish breathe is that they do it through their gills. So if they stay too still, the water won't pass over their gills enough to get enough oxygen. So they're sort of like sleep swimming, which is amazing. Mm-hmm. Gosh, so many neat things. So all, all six episodes really t- look at a different aspect of sleep. They go to a different part of the world. Sometimes we're on the ground, sometimes we're underwater, and sometimes we're in the sky. And But it's all, like again, really stunning, um, beautiful, sort of dark, like in a really lovely, almost melancholy, but not sad. I don't know how to describe it, but I love it so well, much. Well, I mean, sleep sleep is an altered state. Yeah. So we, we, wanted, we wanted to kind of convey that so like yeah the the artwork is a little bit dark what what really brings like that that beautiful like rich darkness to it is the score um, yeah. which is absolutely incredible and uh, our, our composer did an amazing job with that too but we we kind of wanted it to be like a modern take on like you know peter and the wolf or something yeah so, oh, I love especially that. episode six that one is my favorite because like all of the animals are super weird and the last one is a jellyfish which doesn't even have a brain so like you know how does it sleep yeah um but the score for that one is like it's, it's pretty dark and I, I really like what it brings to it. So Ugh. I think all of that works holistically. And is that somebody who is like, you have an in-house composer who does that work? No, we do not. So Eric Nickerson, who is the uh, composer who worked with us on this, um, is actually a, a freelancer that I think the executive producer knew. Oh, very cool. Um, and he's uh, he started doing film music, actually, which is very great. But um, no, yeah. So he he came in and uh, and one of the one of the cool magical things about this too is that like he was brought in. He just sort of instinctively got what we wanted to like show people, mm. um, and uh, he he made that world come to life. So I made stuff move, but you know he gave it 
his soul. Oh. So that that's pretty cool. Oh, I love that. And what about you, Orly? Are you on staff at Smithsonian? Do you animate like all of their stuff? Are you a freelancer? I mean, how, how what's your connection with the uh, with the network? I was a freelancer, but I'm no longer a freelancer. So um, I started off as a uh, video editor, just uh, like editing clips um, and live action clips. And then I I became staff a few years ago. Um, Mostly what I do is uh, I do motion graphics for them. Motion graphics is different from this kind of animation because it's, you know, it's like titling and uh, effects and stuff that you see on car commercials, basically. (laughs) Like, you know, you, you, (laughs) you make stuff look cool. Yeah. Um, But, but I'm, I'm, classically trained animator as well so i I had done like a a couple of small things mostly for social for them and uh, when we came up with the idea for this series um jenna the producer was just like oh i know we're just gonna make an animated series norley's gonna do it Um, so that's kind of how that happened so yeah i am on staff uh most of what i do is text on screen every once in a while i get to do something cool like this um sometimes i even do illustration for them oh fun but yeah, so I mean, digital is kind of a grab bag for that. Like we have a little bit more flexibility than linear. So that's uh, that's where that comes from. Absolutely. And so you did mention before, and I feel like I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about this. Um, you have a background in science illustration. That's awesome. Right. How did you like, well, <laughs> what did you study? How did you get training in that? So I went to art school. Um, I went to art school in order to get to do all of this stuff. Mm-hmm. And um, I was a, I was an, yeah, I was an animator even in art school. Like that was my primary focus. But in order to be a good animator, you've got to you've got to be able to well, you know, a good traditional animator mm-hmm. anyway. You've got to be able to know how to draw, um, and you've got to be able to know how to draw fast. Um, and so in order to to do as well as I could in the animation classes, I also wanted to uh, bulk up my my illustration credentials. And I went to the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, and we've got like a couple of really fantastic scientific illustrators who work out of the field and out of the Jefferson Zoo. And so I, I would go over there and uh, I would like, you know, draw walls with pictures on them and or animals in movement um, in order to to you know, get better at um, drawing volumes and understanding how they move through space Mm -hmm. for my animation practice. So, um, and that, you know, that went everywhere from like actually looking at like live animals running around in a pen um, to looking at fossils, you know, and that that has to do more with like the structure of animals um, to also, you know, looking at like the inside. So scientific illustration also involves like, you know, um, anatomical studies um, and all of that has helped me tremendously with animation. I, I don't know whether or not it's like a requirement. I think you can get away without doing it. But for me, understanding how an animal or a person looks on the inside um, really helped in order to you know get me to a place of understanding for how I was going to make them move. So, um, and I'm glad I did it because I don't know that I would have been quite as successful on this one, uh, had I not done that. That's so freaking cool. I love that. Luckily Uh on top of like animating, uh, the, the episodes, I also like, I I got a lot of help, um, on the, on the back three episodes from another animator from the school of the art Institute of Chicago who did all of that stuff too. So, Oh, that's great. So you were able to collaborate towards the end when I'm sure that the, the timeline was getting more and more narrow. Well, I mean, we we were doing these animations about sleep, and I was getting no sleep, so I would have died. Um, so, yeah, we we brought in we brought in this really great animator called uh, Aaron Wendell, and uh, he did the uh, he did a lot of the animal uh, animation for like the back three episodes. 
Um, and I'm, you know, I'm pretty sure that he would probably tell you the same thing that like, you know, that scientific study really helped. Uh, that's so neat. I've known a couple of um, people, you know, my good friend, Allie Ward, she studied some science uh, illustration stuff. And then Bailey, who was actually at SciComm camp this year, which is a, a an annual science communication training retreat that I co-founded. She actually taught um, a, a mini workshop on scientific uh, illustration, mm-hmm. and it was so much fun. And then she ended up giving everybody like these cute little temporary tattoos during our party that night. And everybody was really oh, pleased. Cool. Yeah, they were really <laughs> cute. Um, it's always really neat to to see people who have that kind of a skill. I've I've obviously. I have benefited from scientific illustrators over over the many years of my education because without that kind of illustration, I wouldn't have as deep an understanding of the brain, of anatomy, of all the aspects of my biological mm-hmm. studies. So much of it has to be illustrated for us to be able to see what's happening because we don't have the tools yet to um, look at things at that level. Or sometimes when you're looking at actual um, I would say like medical examiner images, mm-hmm, you know, when mm-hmm. you're looking at real pathological images, um, things are a little like m- murky and it's hard to tell mm-hmm. the difference between, you know, vessels and maybe tendons and, you know, some some different types of anatomy. So when things are nice and color coded and illustrated in a really clean way, you get a good foundational background. So I'm always super appreciative of people who have that talent, which I do not by any stretch. <laughs> well, actually, no, yeah, I would say that uh, scientific illustration um, is very much almost exactly like what you do. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's yeah. different in theory, but like it is almost exactly what you do. Um, the artist extrapolates information and then presents it in a way that people can understand and digest. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, they act kind of like a prism for the information that's being presented. Um, and that's, you know, it's kind of what you do, too, <laughs> with words. Oh, it's absolutely true. Because if you look at a dead body, for example, there's just too much going on. Like, that's why I think things like body worlds have been so successful, because they've actually, as artists, you know, almost like sculptural artists, decided what to remove and what to leave present so that you can learn things from them. But if you just leave everything flayed open in a way that's not um, kind of curated, and the exact same way that uh, an animator or an illustrator does, it's, it's too messy. And so you have to it's interpret absolutely you have to mm-hmm. interpret all of that information that would be sensory overload and present it in a digestible way for individuals to learn from it and you're right it's very similar to reading a scientific article and then you know explaining it taking out a lot of the jargon and, and you know explaining it with maybe a story um, component mm-hmm. to it um, absolutely and the cool thing is science illustrators get to do that both for a sort of public or lay audience and for a very technical technical scientific audience, because without science illustration, doctors, um, physiologists, biologists across the board would not have been able to learn what they were able to learn. Yeah, very true. And uh, it even manages to cross over into the soft sciences like anthropology, Mm -hmm. because um, you you take a picture of a rock that's really just, you know, a record of how the light hit it. But if there's a cool inscription on it that you can't really see if you're looking at the rock or if you're taking a picture of the rock, then the scientific illustrator is there to pull out that information presented to you. So, yeah, I mean, like that's uh, that's something that's kind of special about the way that we get to work, I think. 
Absolutely. It's just fascinating. And it's so I, I'm just so appreciative that we get to, uh, that we get to learn from such a really incredible craft and that this series is a great um, way to do it. So I have to ask you before we go, uh-huh. um, I always end my episodes by asking my guests the same two questions. And I'm actually really fascinated to hear your answers because we haven't really talked about these concepts. Sometimes at the end of the episode, I already kind of know what my guest is going to say because we've been talking about these two questions throughout the episode in a veiled way. But these are big picture, sort of global things, and they're going to really key into like your personal perspective on the world. So I'm super interested to hear your answers if you're willing. If you're willing. Are you willing? Of course. Go ahead. (laughs) All right, cool. So um, there's sort of two sides of the same coin. And really, it's about thinking about the future. So in whatever context is relevant to you, you could be thinking about your own future, the future of your work, the future of your family, or you could, you know, talk about the future of your community, the future of the country, the globe, the universe. Um, Number one, what is the thing that you're most preoccupied by that keeps you up the most at night that, um, you know, really worries you when you're looking into the future? But on the flip side of that, so we, you know, don't end on a bummer note, what are you most hopeful and excited and sort of inspired for? Oh, man. I mean, that's like, that's such a big question. There's so many things. Um, right? Yeah, there, there's so I mean, the thing is, like, there is one issue that keeps me up at night right now, but like, I don't know how relevant it is to like, anyone else. <laughs> um, yeah, we can always learn from each other. That's true. Um, I just like, I always feel like if I pick one, then I'm like an asshole because I've forgotten all the other big things. <laughs> I know this is a really mean <sighs> closing question. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, so I, I'm, I'm assuming a lot of your guests talk about climate change. I am concerned about that. Um, and it is like, by far most popular. Answer, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. And that's, <laughs> however, um, while I am concerned about climate change and mm-hmm. while I think that that's a big issue, um, the thing that concerns me the most right now uh, is really issues of self-determination for various peoples around the globe. Um, yeah. So it's it's also a conservation issue, but it's, it's a people conservation issue. Um, things about like keeping certain languages alive, uh, making sure that like, you know, certain cultural patrimony doesn't like, you know, pass into darkness without like us at least being able to look at it for a little while longer. Um, those are the things that concern me. And I, uh, it's, it's definitely an issue kind of all over the globe. Um, right now, the thing that keeps me up at night is uh, Catalonia, but like, it's, you know, Pick a place is next what? week. Wait. Oh, is what? Have you have you not been following that? Let me let me tell no. you. Um, Please tell me all the things. <laughs> there is an amazing place in northern Spain. Uh, it's where Barcelona is. Uh, it's its own. Oh, wait, did you uh, own tiny the, country? Uh, did you just pronounce Catalonia in a really beautiful way, and that's why I didn't know what you were saying? Catalonia is just Catalonia in in, in yeah. Catalan. Yeah. <laughs> I love. Okay, now I know what you're talking there about. I for sure do. And um, Killer got excited too. I don't know if you heard him bark. He's like, yeah, this is stressing me out. I'm glad. I'm glad we're on the same side here. Yeah, no, but so, um, I mean, you know, for me, it's really about like, and also my background um, at the grad school level is in anthropology, Mm -hmm. specifically Celtic studies. Um, Oh, interesting. You know, I've I've been in and out of like, you know, places where, um, you know, the culture is beautiful and like, you know, the language is like slowly dying out because like, you know, no one's paying attention to it or it's actively being targeted by a state. So that's, Mm -hmm. you know, that's, that's what keeps me up at night. Um, 
the polar ice caps melting is also not going to help this issue. <laughs> so I feel like it should be thrown in there. But um, I think that like, you know, there are a lot of really beautiful things in the world that are under direct threat. Um, and some of it has to do with uh, endangered languages and minority cultures. And that's something that people should be paying a little bit more attention to. Um, so that's, uh, that's my answer to that. <laughs> Oh, I love your answer to that. This is a wildly different answer than I almost ever get on the show. And that's why I think it's so cool to have people on with obviously different um, backgrounds, different vocations, but also just different perspectives that come Mm -hmm. along with that. Because I think it's really great to hear about something, you know, obviously that's like heavily on people's minds in the news, but I'm not sure if most of my guests would bring up on the show. So I'm really, really glad that you that you brought that well, up. Like and I said, I'm, there are so yeah. many things out there, I know, man. You know? I know. <laughs> it's like such a hard question to answer. And it's so funny because sometimes now when I guest on other people's podcasts, like jerks, they close their episode by asking me those questions. And I'm like, God, I didn't, I don't think about this. I ask my guests those questions. Uh, people are going to put you on the spot for the rest of your life now. I know. <laughs> Oh, absolutely. Well, Orly, I want to first of all, thank you so much for being on the show. It was a ton of fun. And I'm so excited that we got to work together on this incredible series, The Secret World of Animal Sleep. And again, guys, the premiere episode is available. It's called Sleepless on the Savannah. And it's available now for free at SmithsonianEarthTV.com slash sleep. And you can see the five additional episodes live on Smithsonian Earth. You can find that on Apple, Roku, Amazon, Android, and again at SmithsonianEarthTV. Dot com. Thank you so much, Orly. Thank you so much for lending your wonderful voice to this, Kara. It was a privilege. It was a, just a lot of fun. And hey, everyone listening, thank you for coming back week after week. I'm really looking forward to the next time we all get together to talk nerdy. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry. Sorry. We're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No. Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.